Welcome to Bitverse Byte, a weekly podcast about the web industry, tools and techniques upcoming and in use today. My name is Adam Listek, a web developer from Northern California and Central Illinois. So first up, some news. WordPress 4.9.6, Release Candidate 1, was released. And this is the next point release of WordPress, but this is a bit different. The target for this is May 17th. But this release is different in that it's mostly to add functionality for GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, which goes into effect on May 25th of this year for European Union members. Now, WordPress will offer the ability to submit data download requests for specific users, collect consent for cookie tracking with commenters, and to define a privacy page. There are a few other little things in there, but this is the main purpose of this. Normally, point releases don't include this much new functionality, but because of the upcoming requirement, this was something they really wanted to get in. But this should be a big help for those sites that need to just kind of get started and how to comply. Now, this won't cover like extra plugins that you might have that need to export data from that. Each of those will be able to tie into this but it will take some time for those to all update to get to the point where you need this. Sketch 50 was released. Now, as in their own words, this is 50 is just a number, so it's not some huge release of new features. But what I find interesting about this is that instead of a lot of new features or anything, they just focused on improving the editor and making it that much better for end users. And if you look at their release notes, you can see all of the improvements. There's about 100 of these bug fixes and small tweaks. And it's nice to see a company focusing on polish and refinement instead of just a slew of new features. Uh, as nice as those are, having a very solid product, especially its core offering, is often the best way to keep and retain users. As an aside, I really like how their release notes page looks. It's a pretty design and it packs a ton of information in. So. For what it's worth, it, it's kind of a neat uh, page and a good example of how to do release notes. Just another friendly reminder, too, that if you run a Drupal site and you haven't updated, you should do so immediately. Many of the sites out there that haven't are falling to automated attacks due to the simplicity of the bug found in what they were calling Drupal Geddon. And it also really reinforces the point that you should keep your sites up to date as best as you can. It won't always be smooth and sometimes things break, but it is far better than being hacked. And due to the quick moving nature of the web and everything, making sure that you're up to date is very important to making sure you provide a safe and solid experience. Moving on to some links and resources that I found interesting this week. There was a blog article on the command line blog for uh, Microsoft about per directory case sensitivity in WSL. Now, if you don't know what WSL is, it's the Windows subsystem for Linux. It basically means that, say you open up a command prompt and you type bash, uh, it will actually drop you in into a virtualized uh, Linux environment. By default, I believe it's Ubuntu. And this is pretty interesting because it lets you do a number of things as it's not just a separated virtualized instance, it also ties back into Windows and allows you to interact with it, which is where this comes into play. Linux by default allows you to create case-sensitive files and folders, and in the WSL you can actually mount the Windows share. It, by default it mounts in there, 
And those case-sensitive files would actually show up in Windows. But if you go into Windows to actually click on, you know, what two different spellings of the same uh, name, for example, it would only ever open one. Now, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently Windows has had the ability to do this with the NTFS file system for many years, but there is uh, specific calls that you need to use, and there is a global registry override, which is the default. So unless you turn all that off, it wouldn't really matter as Windows itself wouldn't change its behavior. So with the updates that have come out with the latest Windows 10 release and the latest version of WSL, you can now do per directory override to this. So you can actually say that, hey, this directory allows case sensitivity and you can allow Windows to interact with it that way. There is a fsutil.exe uh, executable that you can use to actually set this per directory. Uh, but it is really kind of a cool feature because it bridges the gap between the two different operating systems and you can do a lot with it. Kind of carrying along some of the Microsoft type of things, um, there is a PowerShell module that someone released for Azure Cognitive uh, Services. And it's a really cool module that allows you to send and retrieve data processed through the Azure Cognitive Services. And these include the ability to send pictures and perform object analysis, sentiment analysis, and perform web searches. And it even has the ability to determine if an image is quote-unquote racy or not. This is really interesting because you can basically upload an image using the PowerShell uh, abilities to interact with web uh, services and APIs. And you'll get back a data object that essentially tags what's in the image. Uh, does some sentiment analysis uh, for text that you might do, uh, and do some, the web search is a little fuzzy to me on how best to use this, but it does add some extra metadata around what you could be doing searches for. But it's just a really neat use of those types of services out there. Uh, you know, Google has similar ones, as does uh, Amazon, but, you know, I haven't seen as many PowerShell modules out for that, and if you interact or use PowerShell often, this is pretty cool. Next, a little site that I believe I, I stumbled across a long time ago, but recently refound, is a site, uh, microjs.com, and it's really just a whole site dedicated to small JavaScript libraries that don't depend on larger frameworks such as jQuery. So it's great to search if you just need small functionality without overloading your site with a ton of different scripts and things you may or may not need. I recommend it. I'm starting to try to do that myself. Uh, in the past, as many web developers did, they would just defaultly include jQuery, for example, and they would use that. And it does provide a great many services and not at all discounting uh, jQuery. But if you don't need it and you just need to solve specific problems, then sometimes you can find some really good small JavaScript libraries that do just those things. Uh, this site that just kind of helps out with that, uh, worth checking out for sure. So finally, I wanted to kind of talk about what took place on May, starting May 8th, and that was Google I.O. And really, this is just, I want to talk about one specific aspect, and it's certainly generated a ton of conversation online. And I think that although it's one aspect of the uh, 
conference that went out it is a very important one as it kind of shows a direction and what is possible. So there was uh, a technology demonstrated called uh, Google Duplex. And amongst all of the other product ideas and uh, announcements, and most of it was incremental changes, this is kind of the next evolution of where they want to go. And I get the idea that, or get the impression, I should say, that Google is really trying to test the waters a bit. They wanted to see how the world would react to this type of technology. And it is really the next evolution of uh, all of the AI type of um, products they've used. But it is a different way that AI now has kind of integrated itself into our life. So what Google Duplex is, and this is what they demoed, is that they were taking their Google Assistant, which is the AI-driven uh, product that allows you to interact with a number of services and for it to assist you in a number of ways. But what it does is call, say you, for example, want to say, I'd like to book an appointment for 10 a.m. for a haircut. It would then take it upon itself to call the haircut place uh, your, or salon, and it would interact with the person on the phone as if it was an assistant for you to book that appointment. And so the demo that they showed was really very good. It was hard to distinguish that it was not a computer talking and was just some person attempting to book an appointment for someone else. So on the surface, without thinking about the wider implications, it looks pretty awesome. Let's say you have to book an appointment, and instead of procrastinating, as in my case, you'd have your Google Assistant call and make the appointment based on whatever parameters you have set. And for those of us that are pretty busy or just generally don't want to make calls or interact with folks, then it would be amazing. But if you do dig deeper and think about the implications of this, especially after seeing the demo and realizing that it would be very easy to not catch that you're speaking to an AI, there is a potential for a lot of harm to be done. Part of it is the privacy implications, such as giving enough information about yourself and really that you're giving enough information of yourself to Google to conduct these types of conversations. But admittedly, if you're already along this path of using Google services or really any online at this moment, you have given a ton already. But that does speak to the wider conversation that's being had right now about privacy and data control and who and what can interact with you and your information. And there's also the issue of the person on the other end and really allowing them the courtesy of knowing that they may not be speaking to a human, which incidentally, after this demo came out and this issue came up, Google did say they would preface the call with a warning that it was a Google Assistant calling. They haven't really extrapolated too much on what that might look like or what that might mean, but the overall path forward as to how they want to make sure that the creep factor is lower and also that this is something that people will get used to and feel comfortable with, I think that's the right direction to start with. And another interesting thought that came out of this is how does this work for states with, you know, the various uh, call recording laws, the, you know, wiretapping laws? For those that have two-party uh, systems such as like California or Illinois, for example, this wouldn't really work because both uh, 
places, you know, both sides of the conversation would have to consent to this. Now, this does mean that it's not impossible because, for example, how many times have you called like a support center and they've said this call may be recorded for quality assurance? I think the same idea would come along with that. And if you've used Google Voice, uh, of which I'm a big proponent myself, then you do have the ability to record those conversations. And when you do so, it essentially states that, hey, this is about to record it, you know, so you can give consent to that. And I think that's the same idea. If you are prefacing the call with, hey, this is a Google Assistant, and the fact that you, you know, will be recording this, if only for processing of the call, just to enable it to do what it needs to do to make the interaction work, then you could probably get away with this. And I think that as people get more comfortable with the idea of speaking to an AI or interacting with an AI, especially one that works well, it will, it will decrease the amount of um, worry about that. But of course, just because Google does everything, say, right in this case, if they do, that doesn't mean that this type of technology wouldn't be abused going forward. I mean, just because Google's done it doesn't mean that another company can't come along and do the same thing with uh, sufficiently advanced technology. They could do this and do it for a lot of harm. In fact, it kind of follows with when they said they were able to record, say, John Legend's voice on stage and using WaveNet, their voice technology, not have him speak out every possible combination of items, but model his voice that they can then play back in any way they want. Well, it's it's not hard to say that you could then, with a bit more tweaking and make it a bit better, make that same type of interaction technology emulate anybody. If you had enough uh, conversation from, you know, recordings, which not hard to get nowadays, then you would be able to emulate just about anyone's voice and then have a interaction with them over the phone because you wouldn't be able to tell that they aren't human. So there's a lot of worry that this type of thing could make a, a big problem going forward. And so how do we build in regulation? How do we build in privacy as a core offering to all of these things? So it really does bring up a large number of ethical questions and quandaries that, you know, we don't have solutions for, but we're going to have to address eventually anyways. The main thing, though, is that this is the inevitable path of these technologies. It's really all a matter of how we as a society figure out how to incorporate all of this into our life in a responsible and ethical way. There's a lot of good that can be done, but without forethought, an equal amount of harm can be done as well. So I, for one, am looking forward to what the future brings with this, but it really will depend on how the creators and how the society reacts to this type of technology and how we embrace it. So follow this podcast on Twitter at bitvbyte and Facebook at slash bitvbyte. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week.